follow along with the screen. I'll be reading from my own Bible. And if you're new with us, we regularly study and, and use the English Standard Version of the Bible. So if you've got your own Bible and you're wondering, why does this look a little bit different? ESV. Um, if you need one, grab the one out of the pew back. Also, I want to tell you, if you're new with us, we have books for you on the back table. Um, so when you're leaving, you have a choice. There's one called, Am I Really a Christian? And the other one is called, What is the Gospel? So those are available for folks who are new, first-time visitors here. All right? Well, let's read God's Word together. Uh, Matthew chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 28 and go to verse 34. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that you would give us a right view of who Jesus is. I pray that as we look to your word, as you have revealed to us our Savior, that we would know him as he is, not as we want him to be, but as he is, and that we would respond to his holiness and his goodness, to his power and his might, and we'd respond to one who is our Savior. God, change our hearts this morning by the proclamation of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Again, I do want you to know, if, if you're new here, what we do is just walk through books of the Bible. And so when we get to a section that we might otherwise skip over because it's weird, we don't skip over it. We just go right through it because it's God's word. And so... These types of stories are not stories that we regularly study as a church, but because it's in God's Word, we're going to study it, and we want to see exactly what it is that God wants us to see from His Word. Well, we have been making our way through kind of the countryside with Jesus in Matthew's Gospel over these past few weeks. And, and it, it's become clear to me, as I've been studying Matthew 8 especially, that Matthew is kind of unveiling for us exactly who Jesus is. With each miracle, with each kind of sign of Christ's power, he's, he's unfolding this, this portrait, this picture of who Jesus is more and more. And with, with each movement in the story, we get a new glimpse of Jesus. We get a new title for Jesus, a, no, a new revelation of who this man is. And in our text this morning, we see another one of these titles for Jesus. But we're also, Matthew's beginning to show us more and more 
what it's like to follow him, the challenge of following him. It's, it's nowhere near the case, and I think you've, you've noticed this, it, it's nowhere near the case that everybody who interacted with Jesus willingly followed him. That they heard his teaching, they saw the opposition mounting around him. Some folks were convinced this is the Messiah, this is one who is worthy of following and worshiping. But for many people, actually most people, it just wasn't worth it to follow him. It was too great a cost. And yet, Matthew wants us to see that the more we understand personally who this Jesus is, the more we have to come to grips with what it means to follow him. We have to respond. We can't just ignore him. No one can just ignore Jesus. And Matthew's written this gospel so that we could know clearly who he is and clearly what it means to respond to him. Well, the way that Matthew moves the story along in this morning's text is with these three words. You probably noticed them as we were reading through us, through this text. Behold, behold, behold. He uses this same word three times, and each time he does it, he uses that word to get our attention. We kind of overlook it because it's not really a modern English word. It's kind of archaic. But, but really, when we see that word behold, what Matthew's doing is he's kind of circling this next area and saying, look at this. Look what I'm going to show you. Let me show you who Jesus is. Pay careful attention. He's saying, hey, reader, listen up. It's like a professor who kind of stomps his foot, something that's going to be on the test. That's what Matthew's doing for us here. The first one of these beholds, comes in verse 29. The demons are speaking to Jesus and behold, they cried out. And the second is in verse 32. You have the demons going into the pigs and behold, or look here, the whole herd rushed down into the sea. And then in the third, verse 34, the people come out to meet Jesus and behold, the city came out. You think, well, those are just, that's just part of the story. But, but when you kind of distill it down, you have the demons recognizing Jesus to be the Son of God. We see that Jesus has authority over the demons. And then we see that the people reject Jesus. Those are pretty big movements in this text. And so that's kind of how our outline works today. The demons recognize Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has authority over the demons. And then the people reject Jesus. So let's take each one of these at a time. Last week, when we left off, Jesus had revealed himself to have authority over the wind and the sea. Remember that? He had stilled the storming sea with his voice. And if you'll remember, at the very end of that, the disciples' response was that they marveled at him. And then they said, what sort of man is this that even the wind and sea obey him? And Matthew kind of left us hanging right there. We kind of knew who he was because we had the rest of the Bible opened up and seeing all these places where, well, this is, this is God. He is, he is Lord over all creation. But as far as the story goes, there's kind of a cliffhanger. What sort of man is this? Who is this? And that's the question that he's been asking throughout Matthew's gospel. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? It's that question that everybody has to answer. Who is this man? But Matthew doesn't leave it as a question. 
In our text this morning, right off the bat, the demons answer the question for us. Look at verse 28. Jesus and the disciples land their boat on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, what Matthew calls the, the country of the Gadarenes. It's, it's, and, and for your information, this is kind of a mostly Gentile area. So if they are on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, mostly Jewish. On the east side, it's mostly Gentile. A lot of herders and shepherds on that side of the sea. A lot of Syrians living there. And since there's no such thing as Islam, they have no problem with the pork. And so we'll see that in a minute. As Jesus and the disciples make their way inland, these two demon-possessed men met him. You read Mark and Luke's account, they meet him right there at the shore. It's like they're waiting for him. Matthew says that these men were so fierce, nobody could pass that way. You, you couldn't go on that road. If you can picture kind of a road that, lo- that runs alongside of a cemetery, and these men are living there among the tombs, because that's where demons are comfortable. They love death. And as the story goes, any time someone comes along that road, the men come out of the tombs and attack them. Do you kind of picture what's going on here? I remember when I was in elementary school, there was this house in our neighborhood, and we had a dog that would always run away. And when my sister and I would go look for the dog, we'd get to this one part of the neighborhood, and there was a... When I was you know, young, it seemed like a, a monster of a dog, a big German shepherd, and he would jump over the chain-link fence and run after you down the road. So whenever... Hugo ran away. My sister and I would avoid that area of the neighborhood. We would, we'd go on an adjacent street in order to kind of get around that house. We'd been, we'd been chased by that dog enough times and we didn't want to be confronted by him again. And, and I imagine that's, it, to a much greater degree, that's what it's like for the people living in this town. They had to pass by a different route to get down to the sea to avoid these demon-possessed men. The way that Mark tells the story in Mark chapter 5. At some point in time, the the people had chained these men up to keep them from attacking passers-by, but it didn't work. They, They broke the chains. Well, Jesus and his crew walk up on these guys, and then look at verse 29. Behold, here's our first behold, our first look at this. Remember, Matthew wants to tell us what's about to happen is very important. So look at this. The demons cry out and they scream in a way that only demons can scream. And they say, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Well, there's the answer to that question we were looking for. What sort of man is this? The demons tell us. They, They recognize Jesus immediately. He's the Son of God. This is the Son of God. Matthew doesn't tell us what the disciples are doing during this time. The focus is on this... Uh, it's all tunnel vision. Whatever's happening here is a major confrontation. Well, that name, Son of God, is kind of ambiguous. It doesn't sound ambiguous to us, but, but if you go throughout the Old Testament and you study who is the Son of God or what does this mean, Israel is sometimes spoken of as the Son of God. But so is the promised Messiah. He is the Son of God. If you read Luke's Gospel, when he gives the genealogy of of Jesus Christ, he says that Adam is the Son of God. Son of God is is, is more, think of it this way, it's a title of someone who's very, very, very important to, to the redemptive plan of God. Someone cherished like a son. But when the demons call Jesus the Son of God, 
they're not being ambiguous. They're being very specific about what they mean by that. Jesus really is God's son. This is only begotten son type of son of God here. He's more than Israel. He's definitely greater than Adam. And as the promised Messiah, as the promised king, the demons also understand that he is the son of God who will judge over all of creation. Look back at verse 29. Have you come here to torment us before the time? You see that? Before the time? They're acknowledging he's the son of God, but they're also telling us he's the judge. The one who comes on judgment day and sends the demons into the eternal fires of hell. He's the Lord who arrives on the day of the Lord. He's the one sitting on the judgment seat, the ruler on the throne on that day. And these demons know it. Matthew uses these demons to reveal to the disciples and to us who Jesus really is. They, they know who he is, but then they say, he's, he's er, you're kind of early. Right? Have you come to torment us before the time? They didn't expect him before Judgment Day. And yet he's, he's here. Like 2,000 years or more, probably more, early. And so they're protesting. They're, they're acknowledging, on the one hand, that Jesus is Lord over them and that he can do whatever he wants to them. But they're also upset that he's, he's, he's interrupting their work. In verse 30, they look up. They see these pigs grazing in the field nearby. And so they say to Jesus in verse 31, If you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. So in verse 32, he says, go. And just notice that. That should be an echo for you. Do you remember when, when the centurion came to Jesus? And he said, I know that you're a man with authority and with one word you can say, go. And people go. And those underneath you go. And, and how he healed with a word. The, the same way that he cast out demons back in verse 16. With a word, Jesus says, go. And the demons leave the men, and the demons go into the pigs. And then here in verse 32, we get another one of these beholds. Look at this. Matthew says, look at this, reader. The whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. And that was the end of those demons. There's a couple bright shining truths that I think we're supposed to get from this behold. So the first, behold, Jesus is the Son of God. The second one, though, is a little more complex. So you're going to have to walk with me with this one. So the first thing that we need to see is that Satan and his demons are subject to God. They always have been subject to God. They can do nothing without God's permission. If you look back in the book of Job, Satan has to be given permission by God to even test Job. And God constantly, throughout that book, limits what Satan is allowed to do. Satan's not, he's not equal to God. He's not like a rival to God the way that the, the Dodgers and the Giants or the Yankees and the Red Sox are rivals. Satan is a created being, all right? He's a created being. He's not God. And his rebellious nature is used by God to accomplish God's greater purposes. All the while, God remains perfectly righteous. 
Because while God is sovereign over Satan, Satan is still culpable for his own actions. One day, as even the demons told us, one day Satan and his demons will face judgment for everything they've done. And yet, and yet it's still true that their actions are always subject to God's greater purposes. Right? That's what you call a paradox. And I can't explain it to you. You're just going to have to trust God's word on this one. Let me give you an example of a place where we see this in action. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's this church member who's romantically involved with his own stepmom. It's obviously immoral. It's obviously depraved. The, the, The situation in Corinth is so bad that the name of Christ is being shamed throughout the city because everyone knows what's going on. And also, they know that he claims to be a Christian. Even the city is is disgusted by this man's actions. Well, in response to this, Paul says to the congregation, they are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It's kind of confusing, isn't it? Somehow, and Paul doesn't explain it to us exactly, but, but excommunicating this man putting him out of the church and into the world, into Satan's realm, somehow this will have the the outcome of repentance and a return to Christ. Satan is subject to God's greater purposes. I I think sometimes we misunderstand just how vast the difference is between the most high, holy God and everything else. God's power and his authority are above all. He is sovereign over all. He reigns over all things. This isn't, it's not like mythology where you have Zeus and Kronos or Thor and Loki. Throughout the Bible, the God of all creation rules over Satan because he's one of his created beings. So in our text this morning... Matthew wants us to see that the demons are subject to Jesus because they recognize him as having, as having that same God over all authority. Jesus has authority. Second truth we need to see is that Jesus is for humanity. It's clear in this interaction that as Satan's minions, these, these demons know that Jesus is not going to let them continue to torment these men. As soon as they see Jesus, Son of God, coming towards them, they know the gig is up. No more torturing these men. No more violently opposing this village of people. They know that while they are opposed to humanity, Jesus is for humanity. He's the Savior of humanity. Remember, he's in predominantly Gentile territory. And his aim, Jesus' aim in going there is to rescue these Gentile men from the grips of Satan. And these demons know it. They know that he didn't just come for the Jews. Their only beef is they think he's early. And so Matthew's revealing to us here that Jesus is the Redeemer who's come to crush the head of the serpent and reconcile all things back to God. The demons know what they're up against. And they know that this man who has come because of the love of God for humanity, 
They know that he is against them. And that they are powerless against him. And then he's not going to let them stay, torture these men. And so that's why they say, look, basically, look, I know you're going to cast us out. I know, I know it's, this is over. So let us go into those pigs. And so Jesus permits them to enter the pigs, and they kill every last one through drowning. If you're wondering why pigs, and why drown them, and why not send them, the demons, into a swarm of flies, or mosquitoes, or something less delicious, (laughs) and why all the pigs? I mean, Matthew says that there were many pigs there. In Mark's gospel, he says that the number is close to 2,000. 2,000 pigs. Why kill 2,000 pigs? Couldn't all those demons just fit into one or two pigs? And I don't know the answer to any of those questions because the text doesn't answer any of those questions. It could be, it's just speculation. It could be that that the pigs are unclean and the demons are unclean and so they're a good match for one another. But if that's the case, why not use crows or vultures? There are dozens of unclean creatures in the Old Testament that, that Jesus could have chosen from. But because the text doesn't say why the pigs, it's, it's not the main point. And since it's not the main point, we cannot expect it to be clear. All right? The Bible is such that if the Holy Spirit wants us to see something, he's going to show us clearly. And here we're clearly supposed to see just how powerful these demons are. There are a lot of them. So many of them that it takes 2,000 pigs to contain their power. But here's the big, bright, shining point. They're subject to Jesus' authority. With one word, that whole legion of demons is dealt with by Jesus. These demons who had enslaved these men and kept them in bondage and forced them into these violent acts, these demons were extremely powerful, but Jesus is greater. That's the point. That's the point of the second behold. Jesus has a greater authority. If you're a Christian... Let me give you some application here. What you can draw from this is what John tells us in 1 John 4.4. Because you are in Christ and the Spirit of God is in you, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. It's like we sang, yet not I, but Christ in me. When you are following Christ and there is opposition, Jesus is greater. When you feel like all around you, Satan is winning. When, when you're upset with whatever's happening in the schools, whatever's happening in the world, or whatever's happening in politics. When you feel like Satan has got a grip on your family. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus is greater. With one word, Jesus controls all of these demons. Thousands of demons. It's not even close to a fair fight. 
God is sovereign even over what seems like a helpless and hopeless situation. He who is in you is greater than whatever situation. Well, after the pigs go rushing down the cliff, the herdsmen get more than a little upset. All right? Can you imagine? You, you I mean, just try to put yourself in their sandals for a minute. You're, you're responsible for keeping 2,000 pigs safe from harm. That's your job. You have one job. And, and here's this strange Jewish-looking guy who lands a boat with all these terrified disciples. And this guy's obviously an outsider because he's talking to the people whom everybody knows to stay away from. He's down by the tombs. And Jesus is talking to them. And all of a sudden, you see the crazy guys collapse on the ground. And you turn around and your, your pigs are going nuts. Right? They're squealing and they're stampeding right for you. You run out of the way. You run for your life to get away from them so you don't die. And then they go straight over the cliffs and into the sea. And you look over and they're all just floating and drowning. And all you can think is, I just lost a million dollars worth of pork. (laughs) I mean, think about it. This is pasture-raised pork, right? And according, I looked it up this week, according to the USDA, for, for the month of August, the price for this other white meat is ranging from $3.25 to $5 a pound, hanging weight. So if the weight of one of these beasts is around 150 pounds hanging after it's gutted and skinned, and there's 2,000 of them, that's between one and one and a half million dollars worth of pork. That's a lot of money. You are already, so you're the the herdsman, you're already the poorest of the poor. That's why your job is to follow pigs around. And now you've lost all of this investment from all of the people who are trusting you. You're in a lot of trouble. They're probably going to kill you, or at least beat you. If it's me, I leave. I leave the town, I never come back. But, But these herdsmen are more afraid of Jesus than they are of the townsmen. So they head straight to town. Look at verse 33. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And when he says everything, he's saying, first they told about the pigs. They covered their bottoms. And then they told about the demon-possessed men who were freed. So, So they go into town, they tell the city everything about what happened that day. And then in verse 34, we get our last behold. Here we are. Our last behold, our last Look at this. Look at this, reader. Verse 34. All the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now, why is Matthew pointing to this as important? These other two things are like positive, right? Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has authority over demons. And then here, Matthew wants us to see very clearly that these people want nothing to do with Jesus. Last week, Jesus was shown to be Lord over all creation, and the disciples marveled at him. They were in awe of him. This week, Matthew has clearly shown us who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He's the judge of the world. He has absolute power, absolute authority over these demons. And now he's showing us how these people respond to him. All the city went out to meet Jesus. And why? What is their end goal? They just want to get rid of him. Send him away. 
They want nothing to do with Jesus. He's he's saved two of their townspeople. He sent thousands of demons away from their town. He's made a safe way down to to the seaside again. You'd think that they'd tell Jesus, come into our town and heal more people. Because I'm sure there's a lot of sickness. I'm sure there's a lot of despair. Surely there are more people that need Jesus' help, but these people don't see it that way. They've seen the power of Jesus. They've seen the power of Jesus so clearly that in Luke's gospel, he says they were terrified. They were afraid of him. But when it comes down to it, he has, he's busted the entire pork market. And they want him gone. And, and notice the way that they say they want him gone. They don't just want him away from their town. It's not just, get out of here. We don't want to see you. Look again at verse 34. When they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Go to the other side of the sea again. We don't want to see you. We don't want to hear anything about you ever again. Whatever spiritual gain Jesus might bring to them is not worth the economic loss. They've seen the power of Christ, but they don't recognize his goodness to them because their greatest good is not salvation. Their greatest good is their own wealth. To them, their greatest danger is not thousands of demons right on the edge of town, but the loss of financial security. Here's why this matters. There's a couple kind of takeaways that we can draw from this. For one, Matthew is showing us that miracles are not enough to persuade people to follow Jesus. You see this all over the Gospels. People are raised from the dead and healed and demons are cast out. And there are people there who see these things happening with their own eyes. Yet it's not enough to persuade them that Jesus is Lord. That they should follow him. We, I mean, this is no different than the modern world. We can explain miracles away. We can say they never happened. We can attribute the miracles to something other than the power of Christ. Just a fluke of nature. The fact is, if we don't want Jesus, it's not always because we don't believe. It's because we want something else more. We want something else more than Jesus. If this morning you're rejecting Jesus, it's not necessarily that you don't believe he exists. It's simply this. There's something else you want more than him. Maybe... Like the gatherings, it's your love of wealth. Maybe it's pleasure. Maybe it's seeking after acceptance from others. Maybe it's comfort, security. Maybe it's just your own pride, your own love of yourself. I don't know what it is for you, but if you're rejecting Jesus, there's something you desire more than him. And nobody can persuade you that Jesus could possibly be better Nobody but the Holy Spirit. Nobody but the Holy Spirit turning your heart away from those those idols, those false gods. And I want you to know, our church is praying that God would do just that for you. There's more to this, though. 
There's something else happening here. Matthew wants us to see that while these two men, down by the tombs, were clearly in bondage to demons, these townspeople, these people who think that they have it all together, they're also in bondage. They're in bondage to sin. They're so in love with the things of this world that they want nothing to do with the one who's come to save them from the spirit of the world. The same spirit whose demons were ruling over these two men is ruling over the entire town. Only he's not using violent demons to do it. He's using a far more devious strategy. The love of wealth. Paul says to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians 4.4, The God of this world, and by that he means Satan, says the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The spiritual blindness of these townspeople is just as demonic as the oppression of the men by the tombs. In in Ephesians 2.1, Paul says that anyone who is, is a Christian actually used to be under the domain of the prince of the power of the air, the prince of darkness. But then a few verses later, in verse 4, he says, but the grace of God, it's by the grace of God that we are saved. We're brought to new life in Christ. We're made alive in Christ, brought from death to life. The way that he describes salvation in Colossians 1.13 is this way. He says it's, we're delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of the sun. So it's, it's not that the men by the tombs were under Satan's power and the, the townspeople are in some sort of neutral territory. Like not quite with God, but not quite with Satan. There's no such place. There is no neutral territory. Ever since Genesis, there's been this ongoing spiritual battle of cosmic proportions and there's no no man's land. There's no middle ground. Satan has ensnared all of mankind with the, the irresistible appeal of sin. And God, in His mercy, with, with what we read in Exodus, is His strong right arm. He redeems people from Satan's grip. And who is that strong right arm? Who sits to the right of God the Father, Jesus, the Son of God, the Redeemer? That's the big picture story of redemption. And here's what this means for you. Most people do not have thousands of demons in them. Most people don't have one demon. Demonic possession is a very strange and very, very rare occurrence. And I don't know why it happens when it does. In all likelihood, you probably will not be tortured by Satan like those men were. But until you are redeemed by Christ, you are a slave to Satan. You're a slave. And the chain around your neck that he's using to drag you to hell, his tool of bondage, is your sin. Until this 
Son of God awakens you to your bondage and you see clearly who Christ is and how much greater he is and what he's done for you until you desire Christ more than anything else, you will remain a slave to your sin. So if this morning you are not in Christ, you've got to understand that you are just as much controlled by the influence of of demonic desires as those men living by the tombs. Maybe your desires are not to be violent, but they're just as destructive. Like these townspeople, you're being blinded by the God of this world. Even though you think you're free, you're ensnared. You're caught. You're bound to your sin and your rebellion against God. But Jesus Christ has come to free you. He's come to free you. Just as boldly as he came to free the men from the tombs, he's come to free you from your tomb. With one word, he freed them, and by his death on the cross, he's taken away your sin. It has no power over you. He's taken away what enslaves you. You can truly be free if you'll just repent. Just repent and receive his forgiveness. Receive Christ today. Repent of a life that would rather embrace a pig than Jesus Christ. Repent of a life that is more concerned with wealth and pleasure than with eternity. Receive Jesus as your Savior today. If you don't know how to do this, I will be right here after the service. Josh and Sarah, can you guys be up here with me? Come up to any one of us. We would love to pray with you, to help walk you through what it means to follow Christ. If you're still kind of uncovering what exactly the gospel is, pick up a what is the gospel book on your way out today. This is not something to mess around with. I think what Matthew has shown us more clearly than we can even imagine is the danger of what it means to mess around. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you do not leave us in our sin, in our darkness, that you do not leave us running headlong to hell but you have sent a redeemer. You have sent our Savior, Jesus Christ, to, with one word, forgive us, with one action on the cross, to die for us.